along, communicating the faithfulness of God and how great it is, and a good reminder that God's faithfulness is rooted in who he is. It's not based off of what we do. It's rooted in who he is. It's his character. So God is faithful. So good morning. All right, all right. I'm certainly looking forward to jumping into what we're going to cover today, particularly with uh, the letter to the church of Sardis. We're going to be in Revelations chapter chapter three, Revelation, not Revelations, right? Not Revelations. It's not multiple Revelations. Uh, so if you can turn with me to chapter three. Last week we covered the fourth letter, uh, the letter to the church in Thyatira, and today we're, again we're going to look at the letter to the church. In, uh, in Sardis, and we'll see what our, our Lord has to say to his bride this morning. Uh, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, last week, I didn't necessarily read the text in its entirety. This week, I want to. So I'm going to read the text, and if you have your Bible, certainly follow, follow along. But we're going to read the text in its entirety, starting with Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you, not, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Great God and Father, uh, we just uh, come to you today, God, and we, we are grateful again uh, for all that we have sung about, uh, the truth that just is reflected through the songs that we have sung collectively as a body today. Great is your faithfulness indeed. You are a holy God. You are a sovereign God. You are good. You are a just God. You are immutable. You do not change. And God, we are grateful for that. I pray for our time this morning. Help us, God, as we work through this letter. Help us, God, to, to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. Uh, give us ears to hear, Father. Give us eyes to see. Help us to hear and appropriate and help it to, I pray that that, 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 that hearing and the appropriating would uh, transact obedience and faith. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we, we read through the letter and let's just say it is fascinating when we think about each letter that we've worked through. It's fascinating to see how the letters themselves function like a spiritual MRI. Just by a show of hands, who's ever had an MRI? Yeah, yeah, you, you gather a lot of information with an MRI. Sometimes an x-ray just won't do. But an MRI gathers so much information. And it gives a clear diagnosis to the health and condition 
of, of obviously those who have ever received one. It's a very clear diagnosis. But particularly for these letters, um, this spiritual MRI that's being applied to Sardis, it's a very clear diagnosis to the health and the condition of this church. If you remember the framework of the previous churches that we've worked through, there have been four. We're on the fifth one. Uh, the framework, uh, we can certainly say the framework and the tone of this letter, it's different. Uh, particularly the tone, the tone is, is severe, right? It grips you, definitely grips you. And we, we saw that, you know, when we were in Ephesus, working through the letter in Ephesus, we saw that this church was, they had sound doctrine, but they lacked love. Sound doctrine, they had good doctrine, good doctrine, but they were lacking in love. And we saw that the, the letter to the church in Smyrna, they were the persecuted church. And while they were the persecuted church, our Lord uh, encouraged them to remain faithful in suffering. And we need to hear that today, indeed. Pergamon was the compromising church that misplaced their allegiance. And then we had um, Thyatira, that was a church that was, it was, it was vibrant and they were growing in significant ways. But this church was tolerating the woman Jezebel. They failed to, to confront an internal threat. But you know, when we read with what we've read in chapter three, particularly with the church in Sardis, it's devastating because the, the spiritual diagnosis of this church is that this church is spiritually dead. She retained an outward appearance of life. She's dead. She's dying. Right. And it's a grave predicament that this church is in. Uh, and it's so severe if you read through the letter, it's so severe that our Lord doesn't, like there are no commendations, nothing good that he has to say to this church. Uh, and and I, would, I would go on to say when we consider the spiritual condition of this church, uh, Jesus isn't mincing words, all right? Jesus, Jesus isn't sugarcoating anything. It's life or death. They are in desperate need of immediate spiritual surgery. Desperate need. It's kind of like one of those situations, if you've ever heard the story of the person who goes to a routine doctor's appointment, and they go to this appointment, but they find out that they are in need of urgent, life-saving surgery. You know anyone like that? All right. I went to the doctor because my big toe was throbbing. Come to find out, I needed a heart transplant. Crazy, right? <laughs> That's crazy. But this is the dire reality of this church. They are in desperate need of surgery. They're dying. I want us to say this, they're dying not because they have old members. That's not the case. Because you can be an older church and still be vibrant and still be about the mission of God. Right? But that's not the reason as to why they're dying. It's deeper than that. They're dying because they've accommodated and consumed the pagan environment that they're in. They're dying because they've become syncretistic in terms of how they move and how they operate within the culture. <clears throat> and what I wanna do this morning is I wanna observe um, you know, the symptoms of a church that is flatlining and near death, all right? I'm gonna look at the four symptoms specifically of a church that is flatlining, flatlining and near death because that's what we have with the church of Sardis. You see the first symptom in verse one. 
and it's just after the self-description, and I want to take some time to kind of work with the self-description, not too long, but the self-description reads, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is coming from, with this self-description, it's coming from the very one who holds the future of the congregation in his hands. And this is the very one who knows the true condition of his bride. And this, and it was kind of interesting is that Jesus knows the true condition of his bride and they have a, pers- a perception of themselves that's jaded. Their, their, their perception of themselves is such to where they see themselves in an accomplished way. They see themselves as being relevant. They see themselves as being innovative. But Jesus knows the truth about this church. And again, we're going to get to that first symptom. And I just want to reiterate that, you know, when we consider the self-description, the letters in and of themselves, we've got to remember that the the self-description operates in such a way to where we've got to remember that it comes from a profound heart of love from our Lord. And he's concerned about his bride. And again, let's get to that first um, symptom. Sardis suffers from a desire to win the approval of the culture rather than uh, win the approval of Christ. Um, Sardis has positive and positive and favorable reputation. And again, we're just grabbing this from first one. They have this reputation for being alive. And they're not only alive in the, the eyes of their members, but they're, they're perceived as being alive by, some of the, by the other churches. They're, they're, they've been embraced by the surrounding community. They have high attendance, this appearance of life. They've got material blessings that they're abounding in, but they are deceived. Appearances can be deceiving indeed. And the reality is that despite the, the, the appearance of things, this church, they, they don't even realize that they're dead. They don't realize that they're dying. They're not even aware of it. And one, one theologian went on to say that they've, they've so compromised with the culture that they're literally Christian in name only. Think about that. They're Christian in name only. It's kind of like the Salvation Army. Christian in name only. Kim Riddlebarger, he goes on to say, he speaks of the state of Sardis. He says, because of the grandiose overestimation of itself, the church in Sardis is indifferent about its true condition. Its reputation for life has gotten in the way of any self, honest self-evaluation. Again, they're, they're suffering from, from this desire to win the approval of the culture rather than the approval of God. And the consequence of this, it's a failure to see Jesus as the life and the vitality of the church. They're failing to see that Jesus is the one that, one, we, we, need, we need Jesus' approval. And when we have Jesus' approval, that in and of itself is life-giving. That brings vitality to the church. And I think a question that we need to consider in light of this particular this, this symptom, this first symptom, is that in what ways do we desire to win the approval of, of, of the culture rather than Christ? Or, or what ways are we desiring to win the approval of people 
rather than Christ? In what ways has the world become big and God has become small to us? Where are we prone to seek life and vitality outside of Jesus, outside of the sufficiency of Jesus? Sardis, it's a church that's completely, they've accommodated, they've compromised with the culture and in their desire to seek the approval of the culture rather than the approval of Christ. I love how G.B. Caird states, he says, they became the, the perfect example of inoffensive Christianity. The perfect example of it, of, inoffen- of ino- inoffensive Christianity. We'll look at the second sy- symptom of this church, and it's in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 and 3, it reads, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received, heard, keep it, and repent. And that second symptom is a failure to be spiritually vigilant. Again, a failure to be spiritually vigilant. In this particular symptom, it's characterized in three statements. If we look back at uh, verse 2 and 3, we see the statement, wake up. We also see the statement, your, your works are not complete. All right? and then we also see the statement, remember. So what we gather is that Sardis is spiritually lethargic. Track with me. They are spiritually anemic. And they have spiritual amnesia. Just shake your heads. They are spiritually lethargic. They have spiritual uh, amnesia and they are spiritually anemic. And what's what's interesting is that their, their failure to be vigilant, it parallels with the history of the city. Because it was twice in the history of the city that the city of Sardis was actually uh, overcome and captured by its enemy because of a, a, a failure to be watchful, a failure to be vigilant. And Jesus is saying that uh, like the historical events of this city, the church in Sardis has fallen asleep, just like the city fell asleep historically. And their works have become inadequate, and they're failing to, uh, to appropriate the truth of the gospel. And rather than being light in the world, they've made peace with the spirit of the age. Think about that. They've made peace with it, with the spirit of the age. But what's encouraging with, within this particular part of our text is that Jesus gives the diagnosis, but he also gives a prescription. Right? And we don't want to miss, we don't want to miss the, what he prescribes for treatment what he prescribes as the cure. And he says that they're to be watchful. And I want to read the text and then just kind of explain from there. Going back to verse 2, it says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Verse 3, Remember then what you've received. Goes on to say, keep it and repent. There's the prescription right there. All right? The diagnosis is that you haven't been watchful. 
you haven't been spiritually vigilant. But the prescription, the treatment, the cure, as we look to Christ, is we need to wake up and be watchful and exercise biblical discernment. Wake up. Be watchful. I'm not saying that you all who are falling asleep. I'm just kidding. You're not falling asleep. But wake up and be watchful. It says to, to, to strengthen what remains. To get into the weight room of grace. Get into the scriptures. Struggle with them. Right? Worship and bow at the feet of the scriptures. Let them make you strong. It says to bear in mind what they received and heard. Keep it. Right? Keep it in mind. Keep it. Guard it. Obey it. And I love that last part. Repent. Wherever you need to repent, repent. In every way, wherever it's available, wherever possible, repent. Repent. This is, this is, this is the counsel. This is, this is precise counsel. This is counsel that's coming from the great counselor. This is counsel that's coming from the great physician. This is counsel that, that they need to hear. And this is counsel that we need to hear today as well. But if you look at verse 3, uh, verse 3b, it says, if they refuse or reject this counsel, there's a consequence. And Jesus is going to visit them in judgment. That's the consequence. I love what Kim, Kim Riddlebarger states. He goes on to say that whenever a church or a denomination becomes like the church in Sardis, oh, there we go, all right. But he goes on to state that whenever a church or a denomination becomes like the church in Sardis and avoids preaching the gospel because of the, the scandal of the cross and thinks of itself alive when in actuality it's actually dead, that church risks coming under the judgment of Christ himself. Again, this church has been spiritually lethargic. They are spiritually anemic. They have spiritual amnesia. And Jesus is saying, wake up, wake up. Here's the third symptom. And that's a failure to pursue personal holiness. We're going to see this symptom play out in verse 4. I'm going to read verse 4. It says, yet you have uh, still a few a few names in Sardis, people who have not, if you can underline this statement, soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And again, the, 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 second, the third symptom is that they suffer from a failure to pursue personal holiness. What's interesting in this particular passage, there's a stark contrast between two groups. You've got the majority who soiled the garments, and you've got this this undefiled um, minority that have not, the few names in Sardis that haven't uh, soiled their garments. And what's, what's, what's interesting is that the imagery of soiled garments, some of you guys, if you're reading this, you're like, what exactly is he talking about? Soiled garments, right? But this imagery, it builds on, on a major source of wealth for the city. And this is a major source of wealth that, that's produced great uh, revenue for the, uh, for the city of Sardis. And it's, it's pointing toward the, the, the wool industry, right? So Sardis makes garments. They make wool, really nice wool. Some of you may be wearing that wool today. I'm not just kidding, right? But they make very good wool. And it's become a very uh, great source of wealth for the city. 
But unlike the, the garments that the city makes, the spiritual garments of the majority are soiled, defiled, and bankrupt. They're not, they're not generating anything other than the fact that they're soiled and defiled. And what we don't want to miss with this particular, this imagery that's being laid out, is that soiled garments are a byproduct of unfaithfulness. Think about it. Soiled garments, they're a byproduct of unfaithfulness. And isn't it so true that in the Christian life, when we think about unfaithfulness in the Christian life, isn't unfaithfulness a byproduct of failing to pursue personal holiness? Think about it in your own lives. Don't think out loud. But think about it in your own lives. When we are unfaithful, when we are, when we are not desiring God, we don't have holiness on our minds. Right? But when we have right, the holiness of God on our minds and we want to pursue hard after him, faithfulness follows. Faithfulness follows. And, and, and Sardis's failure to, to pursue holiness, it's compromised their confession of faith. And that's what we really want to get to. They're failing to pursue holiness, and the consequence is that it's compromising their, their confession, their profession of faith. And it's to the point to where, again, our Lord says, you have soiled garments, Contrary to what you perceive about yourself, contrary to the success of, of your church growth methods, contrary to your visibility within the community, contrary to all the ways that you've innovated church, your, your, your garments are soiled, Sardis, and it's produced quite the stench in the nostrils of our Lord. Wow. 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 There are those who did not compromise, though. All right? The text does tell us that. There are those who, who pursued holiness, who realized that while they were in the world, they're not of the world. They resisted the temptation to embrace uh, ideologies and the temptations that was in within the broader culture. There were those who, who, who desired God and obeyed the truth of Scripture. They persevered. And here's what we're told about those individuals who haven't soiled their garments. They're told that they are going to walk with Jesus. They're going to walk with him. They're going to, they're going to walk with him. We'll look at the fourth symptom. The fourth symptom of a church that is flatlining and near death. We see the fourth symptom in verse 5. Let me go back. Verse 5 reads, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And our fourth symptom, our fourth symptom is that they suffered from a failure to live with gospel conviction and maintain an eternal perspective. I'm going to say that again. They suffered from a failure to live with gospel conviction and maintain an eternal perspective. Is what Kim Riddlebarger has to say about this particular aspect of the symptom. He says, the bottom line seems to be that this church compromised with the surrounding culture so badly, 
so badly that it ceased to proclaim the gospel to those within the church and outside of the church. They just forsook the gospel. And what looked like signs of life and success, probably good attendance, material blessing, could not disguise the fact that this church failed to be light in darkness. This church was dying, if not already dead. This is what Kim Riddlebarger had to say. But again, with this, this last uh, symptom, this last and final symptom, a failure to live with gospel conviction and an eternal perspective, Sardis certainly, yes, is failing in this particular area. When we think about it, so do we. Right? It's very easy for us to look back and say, oh, Sardis, you didn't get it right. But it's, it's difficult for us to, like, <laughs> take in, you know, not just necessarily have introspection, but to assess our own lives. And in assessing our own lives to the truth of Scripture, it's difficult for us to, to, land, to, to, to land with clarity and to, to, to have some honesty about where we are, all right? Even as I'm preaching here and I'm saying, okay, they, they failed to live with gospel conviction. I fell in that way. <gasps> Gasp. And guess what? You fell in that way. <gasps> Gasp. And what that means is that we need Jesus. We need the gospel. We need to live with gospel conviction, and we need to have an eternal perspective. And I want you to consider in verse 5, there are three rewards to the overcomer. And the overcomer is the person that, that lives with this gospel conviction. The overcomer is given white garments. So side note, that's mentioned seven times throughout the book of Revelation. And it has to do with our justification. And all of these, all of these rewards are like interconnected. But it has to do with our justification. We have a new identity. Jesus has, has given us his, his righteous garments, and we have given him, we've given him our sin. Right? We've got this great exchange that's happening. All right? My shabby, old, filthy rags for Jesus' impeccable, perfect, righteous rags. Well, not rags, but garments. We get that, a new identity. Here's the second reward. His name will not be blotted out of the book of life. What's interesting about this particular reward is that in the Old Testament, the book of life was a register for all of those who uh, were citizens in Israel. And this, this citizenship uh, came with privileges. And when we think about the book of life, because we are justified, because, because of what Christ has done for us, our names are in the book of life, not because we want them to be, because of what Jesus has done for us. And we get a new identity, we get a new citizenship. And uh, before I go to the third, to the third reward, uh, I know for some who are reading this, they say, you know, well, names not blotted out of the book of life, does that mean that we can lose our salvation? Absolutely no. No, we cannot lose our salvation. You want to be careful with the imagery that, that's being drawn out here. Um, you want to be careful to like base a Bible doctrine off of one verse. 
Like, don't, don't, don't do that, right? It's a collection of passages, but we certainly want to let the text speak, all right? And this is a beautiful picture because it's a reward. And the third reward is that Christ will confess our names before God and his angels. We get a new identity. We get a new citizenship. And family, we get a new future. We get a new future. It's quite the reward from our Lord. It's quite the reward to the overcomer who lives with gospel conviction and an eternal perspective. I'm going to read verse 6, because verse 6 is it's helpful for us. It's the end of the letter. I think it helps to set the tone. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He that has an ear. I don't think there's anybody in here that's earless this morning. All right? Some of you are looking around like, who's earless? Who is? Where are they? Right? But he that has an ear. Would you hear what the Spirit is saying to the church? It's quite the conclusion, quite the diagnosis. What an amazing prescription it is given to this dead church. And when we, when we consider, as we conclude our time, when we consider what, what we've covered, and these, these symptoms of a church that is, that is flatline, flatlining and near death, and we consider what's happening within the circumstances of Sardis, where they've retained an outward appearance of life, but they were spiritually dead. And we see that this, this church is suffering from a desire to win the approval of the culture rather than the approval of Christ. They're suffering from a failure to be spiritually vigilant. They're suffering from a failure to pursue personal holiness. And lastly, they're, they're suffering from a failure to live with gospel conviction and to maintain an eternal perspective my prayer as we end our time is that we would embrace verse 6. All right? Don't let it just go in one ear and out the other. Like when it goes in, stop it. Right? Stop that thing, right? Stop that thought that we would embrace it and that we would we would hear and heed the spirit's call at the conclusion of this letter. And I believe that the the spirit's call to this church it remains today. And again, will you hear? Will you heed what the Spirit says to the church? Might we heed it today? And I pray that in heeding, that it would lead to faith and obedience, that we would see Jesus as supreme, and that we would see that life, life to the full is found in him. We would, we would celebrate the new identity that we have. We would celebrate the fact that we have a citizenship that's in heaven, in the divine kingdom, and we would celebrate the fact that we have a new future. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time this morning. Um, it's a lot to consider. We think about just the symptoms that, that we covered with this church that is flatlining and near death. It's so It's so easy for us to be in this type of space um, and to say, to have the disposition of, yeah, we've, we've heard this before. It's so easy, God, for us to let these truths remain distant from us. I pray, God, that 
it would not be so today. You call us to have ears to hear and to listen what your spirit is saying to the church. And I pray, God, that that listening would bring about faith and obedience, that we live in such a way where we're making much of you. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.